Father, we know that you are passionate about discipleship because you did give your people that command to go and make disciples. Not to go and make Christians, but to make people who are committed, wholehearted followers of Jesus. And Lord, I pray first and foremost that we would be those people, that we would love you in that way, that our whole life, all of our heart, all of our desire and intention would be directed to you. And we thank you for just the sweet reward that you give to people who follow you, not only everlasting life and escape from wrath and resurrection from the dead, but also just the joy of obedience and a life lived in wisdom and truth, a life of goodness and beauty that reflects your son Jesus. We thank you for those rewards. And I pray that we would be people who are committed to following Christ and eager for those rewards. We thank you for your church, a place to gather and worship together and be edified and apply the teachings of your word. A place where we can come and be encouraged and challenged and prayed for and and lifted up. And I pray that as we look at your word this morning that our hearts would echo those closing words of Scripture, amen, come Lord Jesus, that as we look at Christ, we would be eager to see the Son of God more clearly, that we would be eager to see his life lived out in our own lives, that we would be encouraged by your love for us. And so, Lord, edify us from your word. Holy Spirit, move and work in our hearts to change us and transform us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, hopefully you're already in Genesis chapter 47. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of ours from our welcome table, or you can always pull it up on your phone. After a lot of drama, kind of back and forth between Egypt and the land of Canaan with Joseph and his brothers, we are finally now going to see Joseph's entire family move down to Egypt and settle in the land of Goshen. And we're going to see how this famine plays out. So let's begin in chapter 47, verse 1. It says, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, Joseph took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We've come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, 
as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their descendants. We're going to read the whole chapter, but I think there's uh, enough for us to pause there for a couple of minutes and, and ponder some things. So Joseph goes and tells Pharaoh that his brothers and his father have finally arrived. They've settled in Egypt, and Pharaoh is pleased with this report. Goshen is on the eastern part of the Nile Delta. In case you're interested, it is indeed a fertile land. Uh, it's a good piece of property. Pharaoh himself calls it the best of the land in verse 6. And so Jacob and his descendants settle there. And his descendants will still be dwelling in that land 400 years later when Moses shows up on the scene to set Israel free from slavery. But this chapter really begins with two interviews. First, the interview that Pharaoh holds with Joseph's father, that's Jacob, in verses uh, I'm sorry, Joseph's bro uh, brothers, verses 2 through 6. And that's followed by the interview that Pharaoh has with Joseph's father, Jacob, in verses 7 through 10. And the first interview between Joseph's brothers and Pharaoh reveals just how favored this man Joseph has become in Egypt. It's incredible. Because if we go back just a couple of verses to the end of chapter 46, the last thing that we see there is that to the Egyptians, shepherds are an abomination. This probably means that in the eyes of the Egyptian cultural elites like Pharaoh, to be something like kind of a blue-collar uh, man who looks after sheep and goats is considered far beneath the, no, the notoriety of people like Pharaoh in Egypt. These men would be considered nobodies. Now, you don't go before Pharaoh and boast about your profession as a shepherd. That'd be a little bit like showing up to a black tie party at the Art Institute and talking about your career as a septic tank cleaner. But look at the favor that Pharaoh pours out upon Joseph's brothers. He welcomes them. He does not sneer at them for their low-born position, even though to him it's an abomination. He says to them, take your pick of the best of the land that's under my control. And he authorizes Joseph's brothers even to become the men who oversee the care of Pharaoh's personal flocks and herds. And so clearly Joseph has left a profound impression upon the king, Pharaoh, that his family would be treated with such regard. Now, I'm going to plant that thought in your mind, and we're going to come back to it at the very, very end. But after the brothers leave Pharaoh's presence, then Joseph introduces Pharaoh to his father, Jacob. And there's two things about this interaction that I want to point out to you. First, notice that Jacob blesses Pharaoh, not the other way around. In verse 7, Jacob enters the room and he blesses Pharaoh. And that happens not once but twice because as he leaves the room, he again blesses Pharaoh. And the reason why this is significant is because Typically, it would be the greater who would bless the lesser in a situation like this. I think we kind of intuitively feel that there's some kind of blessing in greatness, that those two things kind of go together. And so we might expect that Pharaoh, who is the king of all of Egypt, the greater party between these two men would be the man who says a blessing upon Jacob. 
Jacob, after all, is a homeless, hungry refugee from Canaan, now standing before a very great king. And it is true that Jacob is the inferior party between these two men as far as the earthly considerations are concerned. But as far as heavenly status is concerned, it's quite obvious that Jacob actually is the greater party. He carries with him the divine blessing of Yahweh that has come down to him through the generations from Abraham. Jacob is undoubtedly the greater party meeting with Pharaoh. The reason is because he is God's man. He is the man whom God has chosen to carry the blessing that will ultimately find its way to Jesus Christ. And so blessing can only flow from Jacob to Pharaoh and not the other way around because it's through this man Jacob that the blessing of Abraham is going to spill into the land of Egypt and finally into all the nations. Now, of course, as I've already mentioned, the ultimate fulfillment of that blessing is Jesus, the Son of God, who is the descendant of Jacob, who's going to bring light and salvation to all the nations of the earth. But I want you to see that even here, Jacob is a blessing to Pharaoh. Because it's in Jacob's son Joseph that Pharaoh has found a man who can administrate his kingdom to increase his wealth, to increase his power. And a man who in the midst of a great famine has a plan to make sure that Pharaoh's people are spared from death and disaster. All of that comes to Pharaoh by God's grace through Jacob and his son Joseph. And so Jacob does bless Pharaoh. But the second thing I want to point out regarding this encounter between Jacob and Pharaoh is this terribly pessimistic description that Jacob gives concerning his life. You see it there in verse 9. Jacob says, Few and evil have been the days of my life. Now, we might be tempted to simply write this statement off as kind of the bitter complaining of a resentful old man. But that's not the case. Tragically, the truth is, Jacob has rightly summed up, I would say, not merely his own life, but the entire human experience, hasn't he? And I think the Bible is honest with us about this fact. I mention this from time to time. This is one of the things that I like about the Bible is it doesn't always paint a rosy picture for us of rainbows and butterflies. It's pretty honest about what it means to be human and live in a fallen world. And so bear with me for a moment while I reflect on this. We live in a culture where people desperately try to, unvo- to avoid the feeling of unhappiness. All around you are people that are striving from day to day to just not feel unhappy. It's almost like we believe that life is supposed to have this baseline experience to it that is cheerful and easy and comfortable with no worries or problems or hardship or suffering. And when our experience doesn't meet with that expectation, then we feel like Something is terribly wrong with our lives. Something is terribly wrong with us. As if the purpose in life, in this fallen world, is to be happy. 
But I would ask you, where is that written for the human experience? It's not written in the Bible, I'll tell you that. This is not a biblical ideology that life is supposed to feel good. Where would you go to make that argument from Scripture? But I think this is one of the reasons why so many people are on different kinds of medication, why so many people are in therapy, why so many people are deeply unhappy and lonely. And I'll say I've been on antidepressants. I've been in therapy. I'm not knocking those things. My point is not to speak negatively of them. My point is simply to say, what if the baseline for the human experience is actually exactly what Jacob says? The days of the years of my life are few and evil. A short life that passes quickly, full of trouble and conflict and struggle and hardship, pain. What if that's the baseline? Maybe so many people feel unhappy because they think that happiness is the standard. And it's not. And that's the problem. And Jacob comes to the final season of his life and with the wisdom of 130 years of living, he points out what he has discovered to be true. This has been his own experience. His life has been hard. God even gave him a name that means struggle, Israel. And that has been his experience from the day he came out of the womb, wrestling with his brother to passing through the grief of losing family members, to now living in a foreign land, a man who has no home and no food to feed his children. But it's not only Jacob the father. Look at the life of Joseph. We've spent many sermons talking about it over the last couple of months. A man betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, wrongly imprisoned. He has missed out on decades of his life with his family, time he could have spent with his father, his brothers. And even as things get better for Joseph, you can't get back the 30 years that were lost. There's no making up for those. What about the people of Egypt? Let's keep expanding the circle a little bit further. We're going to see as we read on through this chapter that their lives have been plunged into misery. They've been full of hardship. They've been full of famine and starvation, so much so that they've worked and toiled and now given up all their money and then their cattle and then their property and then their very lives. Powerless to change anything about their situation. By the end of this chapter, you'll see they basically end up as slaves. And of course, we can again expand it further and go beyond this chapter. We have in our Bibles stories like Job. Job, who is specifically called a righteous man, who suffers the loss of all of his children, who sinks from riches to poverty, who ends up losing his health as well. What about the book of Lamentations? You ever read that one? We know what a lament is. Lamentations records the desperate suffering of Israel Granted, it is because of their own sinfulness, but it is a deep, dark book of sadness. And of course, who could forget Ecclesiastes, which reflects on these things? Chapter 1, maybe this sounds familiar. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Friends, don't deceive yourself. Sin and rebellion have cut deep scars into this world in which we live. Deep scars so that it is true that life often sucks. The dreadful saying rings true, life is hard and then you die. I'm not making that up. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it very similarly in chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. That's in your Bible. And maybe the reason you're not happy is because happiness is not the point of this life. It eludes you because you're pursuing something that you were never meant to grasp. Maybe Jacob is not a pessimist. Maybe Jacob is just honest, wise. And we might find a little relief in our minds if we would accept the fact that it can be hard to feel good in this life because feeling good is not the point of this life. Happiness is elusive because it's not the goal. Now, even as I say that, I want you to see that I think Jacob does make a grievous error here. This is a man whose entire life has been superintended by God who loves him deeply. God who has safeguarded him and blessed him from before the day that he was even born. That man who God has watched over every day of his life, now in this moment as he stands before Pharaoh, does not even mention that God. And so here's an even greater truth. If you take your eyes off of God, what's left to see in this world except the evil around you? If you take your eyes off the God who loves you and who superintends your life, what left is there except pessimism? Shame on this man who stands before the king And could testify to the goodness of the God who has loved him and has nothing to say except evil. All he can see is the misery. When every day of his life God has been good to this man, God has poured out his love upon this man, God has directed every step of his way. And if only Jacob had been able to read Ecclesiastes to the end, maybe he could have written everything that we said so far, but if he had read it to the end, then he might have had his perspective changed by the closing words of Ecclesiastes, which says, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man.
It's too bad Jacob couldn't sit under maybe the teaching of the Apostle Paul as recorded for us in Philippians 4. And you know the struggle of Paul's life. And Paul writes in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Why rejoice? Well, because the Lord is at hand. How much do you need to hear that you should rejoice? Well, twice, because you won't do it the first time. And Jacob did get half of the equation right. He did. The life of man is full of evil. It's full of hardship. It's full of sorrow. It's full of difficulty. I can see some of the older folks in the room nodding their heads. It becomes more poignantly realized the older you get. But the other half of the equation is that in spite of all of the awful things that do befall the children of men that do define the human experience and threaten to steal away our happiness, we can still rejoice in God. We can still rejoice in God. We can rejoice in his love for us. We can rejoice in the richness of the blessing that he has lavished upon us in Christ Jesus the riches of the eternal inheritance we have that we can hardly even begin to fathom in this life. We can rejoice in the care that he has shown us, in the faithfulness that he has given to us. We can rejoice in the nearness of his presence, the spirit of God that he has put inside of us. We can rejoice even in the pleasure of living a life of obedience to him. That's a joy. And the truth is that even our suffering can be full of joy. If we set our eyes upon this God who loves us, even our suffering can be joy. And it's a pity that in the last season of his life, Jacob has an opportunity to stand before a great man, Pharaoh, and testify about an even greater God. And he... He didn't take that opportunity. Now we do know that Jacob believed this because Hebrews chapter 11 verse 21 says that Jacob kept his faith to the end. But I think in this scene, this man missed an opportunity to reflect and rejoice on how good God had been to him. Let's read the rest of the chapter. Verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that the people bought. And Joseph brought all the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone." And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from our Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. 
Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was so severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so that the days of, Jacob's, of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Jacob answered, or Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, swear to me. So Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, we're told finally how the seven years of famine played out in the land of Egypt, and the end result is that in Egypt, many lives are saved from starvation, which is a blessing for the people. And of course, in this process, Pharaoh then also becomes rich, probably rich beyond description. And I assert to you once again that all of this occurs because the blessing of Abraham has come down through three generations, and that blessing has now landed on the caretaker of Egypt, Joseph. And so without Joseph and God's divine presence in this story, I think it would end with devastation, tragedy. Without the blessing on Joseph, countless Egyptians would die. Possibly Pharaoh's dynasty would collapse because when food disappears and the masses get hungry, politicians fall. And it's Joseph's planning and Joseph's work that makes Pharaoh into a powerful ruler who ends up owning all of the land of Egypt. And we're told in detail how this unfolds. First, the people spend their money to buy food. Once the money's gone, they surrender their herds and their livestock in exchange for grain. Now, you might wonder, why don't they just eat the cows? Uh, when I was in Kenya, they're in a drought right now. Dead cows all over the place, unfortunately. You can't feed your livestock if there's no grain. And you can't really live long on a cow that you're eating if you don't have refrigeration. So rather than lose their entire wealth, these people surrender their cattle, their herds, in exchange for food. After surrendering their livestock, they sell their land 
And finally, they give up their very own lives, putting themselves in indentured servitude, surrendering one-fifth of the crop for perpetuity, forever, to Pharaoh so that they might keep four-fifths. Now, there's some real irony at this point in the story, isn't there? Because it's Joseph's work that turns Pharaoh into an incredibly powerful ruler. And as we follow the generations, of course, what we're going to see is that in a few generations, Pharaoh uses that power, the power that was brought to him by Joseph, to oppress the descendants of Joseph. Different Pharaoh, but it's the result of Joseph's work. But not only that irony, here's Joseph bringing all of the people of Egypt into a kind of slavery. And of course, what's going to happen within a few generations is that the people of Egypt are going to bring the Israelites into slavery. Within a few generations, fate will turn upon the sons of Joseph to make it the Israelites and not the Egyptians who are enslaved. Now, I point this all out once again to remind you As we've been making our way through Genesis, that I have said this point again and again, it's God who sets up rulers. God is sovereign over these events in human history. God chooses rulers both good and bad. Both good and bad. God establishes nations. God tears them down. God sends rain. God brings drought. Romans 13 verse 1 tells us that there's no authority on earth except the authority that is given by God himself. And sometimes God gives good leaders and sometimes God gives tyrants. But in either case, God is accomplishing his purposes and these leaders serve him whether they intend to or not. That's an encouraging point. Psalm 146 gives us a reflection on this very thought. It even references Jacob. It says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is the man whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, God who executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked God brings to ruin. The point here is obvious, isn't it, that our hope is not in kings or princes. It is God who establishes these rulers anyway. It's God himself who will execute justice for the oppressed. It's God who will give food to the hungry, just like he feeds the nation of Egypt here and then will later set Israel free from their oppression. God lifts up those who are low, and at the end of all things, God will judge the wicked And he will bring about justice by bringing the wicked to ruin. And so praise God that we don't have to worry about kings or rulers. Because God is sovereign over them all. Lord of all. 
The last thing I want to reflect with you about here from this chapter is just the utter desperation of these people. And there's probably a lot more that could be said about this chapter, but let's just look at verses 18 and 19 where they express this desperate need for help. They're so hungry. They're willing to do just about anything. And then when the help finally comes, look in verse 25. I think we see them rejoicing in their salvation. They do not complain. See, I I would say it's rejoicing, but at the very least we can absolutely say they're not complaining. Their lives have been saved. Even if that means their lives now belong to another, they are pleased to serve the Pharaoh who has redeemed them out of their distress. Now, like I so often do, I have two quick points for you here. First, desperation can be a good thing. Do you know that experience? Do you know the goodness of desperation? Certainly in a spiritual sense, desperation is where we must find ourselves driven to nothing, driven to humility before we go limping to this God to say, save me. We are spiritually poor, miserable, blind, naked, wretches before a holy, holy, holy God. But it's not until we experience some desperation that we're willing to admit that. And if you cannot see and acknowledge your spiritual poverty, then apart from God's grace, you will die like the Egyptians without Joseph's intervention. You have no power in yourself to save yourself. Once again, I would say, stop kidding yourself. You're not nearly as good a person as you think you are. And if you have a hard time believing it, just ask a couple people who know you. You cannot save yourself. And if you cannot acknowledge that simple truth, then you cannot be saved. A desperate man is a humble man. Psalm 34, verse 6, David says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David cries out to God because he sees that he is a poor and desperate man. And of course, how does God respond? With mercy, with salvation. But there can be no salvation where there is not first desperation. And if you cannot see that you are in need, then you will never ask. And so I would say, embrace your desperation and cry out to the one who's eager to save. But I want you to see also how these people respond because it's instructive for us. You might think that after giving over all of their money and then giving over their crops and then giving over their land and then selling their children and their children's children into slavery, that they would be enraged at the one who has brought this upon them. They would be angry that they have become owned by this man. But that's not what we see at all. These people are glad that they have found salvation. They are eager to serve the Pharaoh, eager to live their lives under the authority of the one who has provided for their need. Friends, 
far too many people who call themselves Christians fail at this very point. They claim that Jesus is their Lord, and then they gripe and they complain about the demands that he puts on them. They receive the salvation that he offers when in desperation they turn to him. But once they've received that spiritual food and they feel like they no longer are desperate, then they try and negotiate the terms of the agreement. That's not how this works as Christians. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? You cannot receive salvation from God and then live as if he doesn't own you. If he gave you the salvation, then he bought you and he owns you. You cannot take from God his saving mercy and then keep your life for yourself. That's not the deal. As Christians, we must echo the words of the people of Egypt in verse 25. Jesus, you have saved your lives, our lives. May it please you, Lord, we are the servants of Christ. What fool in desperation cries out to God and then receives the salvation that he begs for and then believes that he is competent to go and live a better life than the one who saved him from the life he drove himself into in the first place? Don't you see? If Jesus has saved you, then your life belongs to him utterly, completely, entirely. And if you're not willing to live your life as if that is true, then I want you to understand, then you are still dead in your sin. You have not been saved. You are still spiritually starving and wasting away. And so again, don't kid yourself. The truly desperate person who comes to Christ willingly makes himself a slave of Jesus in order to be redeemed. And if you're not willing to be a slave of Christ, then you've not been rescued. And if you are a slave, then let me remind you, there is no greater joy in life than serving this king. There is no greater joy. All of our joy as believers is wrapped up in doing what he commands because he has saved us. To serve our Savior is not a burden. It is not a hardship. I may use the word slavery, but it is a joy. What greater joy is there? There is none. To serve this King is the source of all of our hope. It is life everlasting. I want to take you back to uh, kind of where we began. Remember, Joseph's brothers, they stood before Pharaoh, and although they were shepherds, an abomination... And although they were Canaanite foreigners, not Egyptians, and desperately poor in their hunger, really they were men with no right to stand before a great man like Pharaoh, a king. They were accepted by Pharaoh, and they were honored by Pharaoh. Why? Well, the answer is because they were covered by the favor of another. You see? Pharaoh favored these men not for their own sake, but for the sake of Joseph. And don't you see why you have a right to hold the cup and the cracker in your hand? Don't you see why you have the right to stand before this holy, holy, holy God? 
It's because the favor of another rests upon you. You have been made worthy to stand before God, not based on your merits, what you have done, but based on what Christ has done for you. God the Father is well pleased, not with you, but with Jesus, his Son. And the favor of God the Father now rests upon us who believe by virtue of the work of Christ. By virtue of the body and the blood which is now represented in your hands, the favor of God does rest on you. Not because of you, but because of Christ. Joseph's brothers stood before Pharaoh because of Joseph's work and Joseph's reputation. And we now stand before God the Father because of Jesus' work and Jesus' reputation. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this wonderful arrangement that all of the pressure for us to perform well enough to be accepted by the King of Kings has been taken away because Christ was faithful, because Christ loved the Father to the end, because Christ was obedient. God, we thank you that your favor rests upon us because your favor has always been upon your Son. And by the virtue of his work and his reputation, your favor now rests on us. Lord, would you humble us to believe that truth? Would you keep us from becoming proud or conceited? Would you remind us what a terrible, awful thing it is to stand exposed before a holy, holy, holy God? And what a blessed thing it is to be covered in the robes of righteousness given to us by Christ himself. We thank you for the gift of your son, for his blood and his body given for our salvation. And it's in his name that we stand before you and pray these things. Amen.